Let me ask you one question. How difficult do you think is it to create a meaningful overnight success as an entrepreneur? But I think the delusion sort of the, you can only give up equity once. It's very difficult to get it back once you've given it up. And so we always knew that in the Series A, we would be giving up a large chunk of equity. Don't expect that the business case you're starting with is also the one that will be successful. There are so many stories of unexpected results in investment, innovation, and entrepreneurship on the internet. Do you remember the sudden success of BioNTech's and Moderna's vaccines that were merely developed over one weekend? Or the sudden and unexpected successes of companies like Uber, Facebook, or Tesla? Successes in business when they happen often tell only the last part of a story while all the other parts often remain in the shadow. However, the word overnight is a little bit deceiving. Most businesses that are met with this type of success have put years and years of hard work into their companies and the success they receive may have been a long time coming. More than likely, the company has been flying under the radar for many, many years, and their overnight success is simply a light being shown on them. Success in innovation and entrepreneurship often means an acquisition or an initial public offering. In his groundbreaking book, From Good to Great, Jim Collins wrote about the flywheel and the doom loop. In the companies his team studied, the ones with outstanding results just kept incrementally improving, learning, making mistakes and continuing. These efforts created momentum on their flywheel. Overnight success in entrepreneurship often takes years or decades of preparation. That's why I'm sitting down in this episode with Alexander Belcredi and Lorenzo Corsini to learn more about the secrets behind creating overnight successes. Alexander and Lorenzo sold their company Fagomet to BioNTech in November 2021. In this episode, we talk specifically about what it takes to create a sudden and unexpected overnight success. How much effort does it really take to create a flywheel? The speakers in this episode are Alexander Bergredi, who has been working in the pharmaceutical space for over a decade. He spent nine years at the Boston Consulting Group, where he was part of the global healthcare team focusing on pharma and medtech. While at BCG, Alexander became acutely aware of the urgent need to develop alternatives to antibiotics and was fascinated by the role that phage therapy can play. In 2017, he co-founded Fargomet Biopharma, a biotech company developing phage-based pharmaceuticals to treat bacterial infections. At Fargomet, he served as a CEO and focused on the business and finance responsibilities. Alexander holds a Master of Arts in Modern History and Economics from the University of St. Andrews, as well as an MBA from INSEED. Lorenzo Corsini has long been fascinated by the many examples of lysines effectively treating bacterial infections and by how underexploited this extremely diverse and abundant natural resource is. Lorenzo's spent the last nine years at the Boston Consulting Group and was a senior principal in his latest role. Lorenzo has advised the top biopharmaceutical companies on how to improve the quality and efficiency in production. 
Earlier in his career, he worked at Sanofi Aventis in lead optimization after high-throughput screening. Lorenzo co-founded Fagomet in 2017 and served as CEO with a focus on the research and development responsibilities. Lorenzo studied biochemistry at Frankfurt University and holds a PhD from the European Molecular Biology Laboratory in Heidelberg. Fagomet Biopharma was an Austrian biotech company on the development of human therapeutic applications of phages and phage-derived proteins. Fagomet had three active development programs in the fields of periprosthetic joint infections, urinary tract infections, and bacterial vaginosis. Fagomet had a team of 12 highly skilled scientists working on its programs. BioNTech acquired Fagomet in November 2021. Questions we will discuss in this episode. The decision making process to starting a company, how to build structure, processes, and teams, the reality of fundraising, planability of a sell-side acquisition, the five key learnings for first-time founders, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this episode the same way as I did. Today, I'm happy to welcome to another recording of the Life Science Gets Together podcast, uh, Lorenzo Corsini and Alexander Belcredi. Welcome to the show. Thank Thanks. You. Lorenzo, Alexander, I would like to chat with you about how easy it is to create an overnight success with a company. Uh, last year in November, you were acquired or your company was acquired by BioNTech. And uh, from what I got from the conversations around this acquisition, for some people, it looked like it happened uh, overnight. And uh, the conversations reminded me of my youth in the 80s when... Um, artists or sports people showed up on television for the first time and suddenly won a competition. The people in my environment very often said, look at them. Uh, it's such a lucky person. It's an overnight success. And it came so effortlessly. And uh, since we have now the age of startups and entrepreneurship, I sometimes get a similar feeling that to some people, it looks like... Um, creating a company, creating success. It's just a matter of uh, being at the right place at the right time. And then Fortuna or luck or the universe has to send some positive energy and all happens uh, without doing anything. <laughs> Let me ask you the first question. Uh, how easy was it for you to create your overnight success, Alexander? So I think, first of all, I think indeed the um, the time it took us from founding the company and then exiting it um, pre-Series A, that's probably a bit unusual, especially in the biotech uh, space. So I would say it was sort of, in that sense, maybe relatively mm -hmm. fast. But I think the reality is we first started discussing about the idea of founding something in 2015. Um, it then took us about two years to even gather the courage to actually start up something. And then it took another um, three or four years to get to the point uh, where we then um, were able to, to make an exit. Mm -hmm. And now in reality, we're still part of the journey. So the, the entrepreneurial journey continues um, just as part of a, a much larger um, company and, and corporation. So um, we're now, if you want, in our seventh year of the, the Fagomate journey um, and uh, the entrepreneurial journey has still not, not come to an end, even though it sort of came to a, um, an interim success. So I mentioned seven years. Lorenzo, how was it for you? How was uh, this uh, creating this success? What was your impression? 
Look, I, it, it was always my dream, in a sense, to to start my own biotech company. That's uh, I, I started dreaming about that when I started to study biochemistry in 1998 or so. And um, so it, it it took a very long time. I mean, so maybe the the actual journey was only seven years, but in reality, it it started with. Um, with with uh, like building the the capabilities to do this uh, first during the PhD, then during nine years of uh, of uh, consulting at the Boston Consulting Group, then in like in parallel all the the, the pre founding work that we did. So um, the, I think that there there is a lot that that builds into this and to, that that has to combine and come together uh, to to prepare for such an exit. You said seven years. It took you seven years to create uh, from the inception of the company until the acquisition by BioNTech. Uh, what was the the moment in time when you both sat down and decided to actually found the company? What happened back then? What was this uh, this uh, initial uh, event between you two? So I think the initial event was simply going for lunch as colleagues at the Boston Consulting Group, where mm -hmm. Um, we sort of started talking about uh, novel antibacterials and the potential that that phages and phage-derived medicines could have in, in solving us from what's a true humanitarian crisis. Yeah, I mean, the, the antibiotic resistance pandemic might not be talked about as much as, um, as COVID now, um, but it's a serious problem. And so we started discussing it and... Uh, And then we sat down after lunch, we sat down over coffee and continued discussing it. And then over the next weeks and months, we, we kept discussing it. And so I think um, we had found something that that fascinated both of us. Um, I don't think that in 2015, we yet were convinced that we were actually going to quit our jobs and, and start a company in, in that direction. Um, and that took a bit of courage to work up because um, we both have uh, families. Um, at that time, we had very young children. Uh, we had a comfortable job. And I would say it, it became more and more probable. We like we started really a consulting style and made slides uh, uh, like that we called sort of our, our pre-founding due diligence. Um, it became more and more probable. At some point, we um, we won a little grant for travel money and uh, and uh, organized a symposium where we invited 15 professors in in the field of. Uh, um, Uh, both, both uh, like clinicians uh, who were treating bacterial infections and phage scientists and so on, and uh, had a discussion with them. And after that, uh, that was in a sense a green light. Yeah, they they said this this totally makes sense. They gave us uh, hints and tips uh, what what to start uh, first, what what not to start first. Um, that was late in 2016, and after that, basically the whole year 2017 was about. Basically, we were sure that we would start it, but uh, yeah, we were deciding when exactly, uh, which which steps to take when. Alexandra quit uh, BCG first. Uh, then at some point in November, we actually started a legal entity, uh, went to the notary and did, did all that. And then in, in December, I quit too. So if I understood it right, it was about two years. And you mentioned that you would, would like to pick one point that you mentioned. It's, you started with slides. Um, very often when, when, when I talk with people from the United States or from the United Kingdom, um, they have a different approach. So 
often I meet people who say, okay, now we have an idea. The next thing we do is starting a company. And you said that you first had this uh, consultancy-like approach that you started with Slide. And uh, at the end of a process, uh, you decided to found a company. Can you explain your reasons why you did it that way and not the uh, Anglo-American way to say, okay, we have an idea, we start a company and the rest will fall into places? <laughs> I think just being afraid of risks. I mean, the... The, if it, as a, as a consultant, you have very high opportunity costs. Mm. So leaving your job and actually quitting it to start essentially all over, because I mean, we had never started a biotech before. So for us, it was starting all over again at a point in our career where we had a very comfortable path ahead of us. Um, I don't think we would have found the courage if we, we didn't see for ourselves that there was enough space for us to grow a company in, or the, the competition was, was in a way um, not overbearing or the, the patent landscape was not yet completely, you know, you know, taken up. So maybe we, we could have been as successful or more successful by immediately jumping into, into founding it. But at the end, I mean, we, we had to convince ourselves, um, maybe also to convince our wives. Um, I mean, it took a bit of, of uh, of convincing before we were able to jump over that that risk aversion uh, that 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 we had. And I think to overcome it, I mean, we, we really wanted to uh, to be sure that we're looking that we're validating whether this could work or not along all the relevant dimensions. And so slides, just because we were consultants, and sort of then that's the uh, default tool that you use to to write down a, a train of thought and, and write down a plan. Um, but but it was crucial to to look at, to analyze systematically, okay, could it work technically? Uh, is there a sufficient medical need? Um, could there be regulatory problems? Would there be technical problems in producing whatever we wanted to produce? How long would it take from a financial perspective? How much money do you need? Uh, can you get that money by, uh, by, by being able to credibly promise um, uh, investors a decent return? And, and like all these things need to be thought through, I think, before, before you really start. Of course, you can, you can build a, uh, you can just go to the notary and, and, and build a GmbH out of thin air. But, um, like our approach is, is more be like know a little bit more what you're doing before, before you actually start. But I think there's also one point here. And that's, uh, I mean, we're in the biotech space. It's a highly regulated industry. You just you can you can take so many wrong turns at every step of the way, and we have been working in the pharmaceutical industry for a number of years, and so we we were at least we we understood some of it, some of the path that we had to take, and so I think the um, I also see it now that that people are people a lot of people are excited by biotech because they've seen the success that now came with. Um, with saving the world from the COVID pandemic. But I think people are also still slightly naive about what it actually means to take a, a pharmaceutical agent actually into clinical trials and then onto the market um, about the, the length of time that it needs, about the probability of success. Um, and so I'm sure we were also quite naive when we started um, Fagomate in, in 2017 or started talking about 2015, but we still had a i think a good sense of um of caution in our minds having worked closely in the field and knowing that well you, you don't just drink pharmaceutical and then you start 
making revenues the next day. Uh, that, that maybe happens in, in tech, but it certainly doesn't happen in biotech. I completely agree to that approach and I, I love it. It's a similar approach that I learned in the in the industry. Sagrana, for example, always think things through first and then act and not start with acting and then think uh, how things uh, can turn out in future. Knowing that a minimum of nine out of 10 startups fail, I believe uh, some percentage of that failure rate is due to uh, an early start without having uh, at least uh, thought about the first three or four steps in the process. Do you see that similar? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we, we, it, it would not have been possible for me at least to, to uh, build Fagomate and scale it and, uh, and, and run it uh, without the, the experience uh, of, of nine years of consulting and, and, and before even the PhD. So after sort of the, the typical like college dropout um, I don't think that, that it's really possible in this field to, um, to, to build a successful company and, uh, and, and run it without, without a bit of experience. And then with, even with that experience, you still need to systematically think it through that you're doing the right thing, not just producing great science, but producing great science for a problem that exists in a way that it actually can be solved in the real world. Yeah. That's true. Alexander, I would like to emphasize one point that you mentioned, uh, that especially in drug development, it takes some time and it's in highly regulated field. Um, when we look at, uh, sorry to, to, to mention the topic, but uh, when we look at the last two years, uh, the vaccine development, sometimes people thought uh, it happens in one year. Uh, can you um, explain a little bit from the Fagomet perspective with the phages, what it really takes to take uh, a new medication from an idea stage up to the market about what time we are talking uh, in terms of your technology? So I think the, the, the first thing to realize is that just because something you know, works in, in theory or on a piece of paper doesn't mean it actually works in the lab. And I think that's something that we ourselves found out quite quickly is that the, the notion of taking phages into medicine is not as straightforward as simply knowing that, that a phage will, will infect and kill bacteria, um, mainly because phages and bacteria are in an equilibrium in nature. Both simply exist. And in a patient, we don't need an equilibrium. We want to get rid of the bacteria. So we have sort of a, a natural dynamic that, that we need to overcome. And a lot of work that we did in the beginning of our company was trying to figure out how do we now get from that that idea that we have a natural entity that kills bacteria to a pharmaceutical that is actually reliable once it gets to the clinic. Because it's unfortunately not enough to have success with individual patients. That's great for an individual patient. But to have something that people can use on a regular basis and for a specific indication, you need reliability. And so in our first two years, we learned a lot of lessons around what reliable approaches are and, and what not. And if you now look at the lead program that we have, it's not an entire phage anymore. It's just a phage-derived lysin um, that is uh, a sort of a, a protein and a, a simpler-to-handle entity where we think we have a much better reliability um, plus some, some, some other advantages. So I think that the, the initial focus in drug development is around how do you get to a drug that reliably does what you needed to do. And then you need to answer all of the regulatory questions. Is it safe? Can we produce in GMP? Is it stable, et cetera? Um, we still think that we're pretty fast. So for our lead program, we came up with the, the sequence in, was it mid-2018, something yeah. like that? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and if you're wondering why I'm looking over, it's because Lorenzo is sitting, sitting right next to me here. Um, the, and then we're, we're hopefully going to move into a first clinical trial next year. So that would be four and a half years from, you know, the dreaming it up to a first patient in. Um, and then the clinical path, difficult to estimate, but let's say three to four years, that's about eight years that, uh, that from sort of inception to market which is quite fast if you look at the average pathway that drugs take, which I think is, is 10 to 12 years on, on average. So we still think we have a fast platform, but fast in the context of pharmaceuticals, not fast in the context of, uh, you know, a fintech company, which within a year can have first revenues and within two or three years uh, can then become a unicorn. I think this is an important part that you mentioned, uh, this ideation phase at the beginning. Uh, of their uh, entrepreneurship journey before founding a company and also taking into account the environment that you're operating in. And uh, as you said, bringing a product from, from the labs or from uh, basic research to the market is usually a process of eight to 15 years. And uh, it's worth uh, figuring things out before and especially in the B2B environment to go through each single step. Uh, is it possible? Is there a competition on the market? How is the need for the patients before founding a company? Getting the strategic direction right initially helps alongside the way. Would you agree to that or do you see it differently? Yeah, I mean, the... It, it 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 is a it, it is a very complex process and uh the you can take a lot of wrong or or you can, you can take a lot of decisions on the way that um that derail you or or add further years um for example if you if you go for the wrong first indication right the, um if uh, if if let's say the market or the addressability for that is difficult Uh, so I, I think what what we looked at in in, in Fagomate was always um, um, we're trying to de-risk uh, the the approach by um, taking slightly different vari variations of the same technology at the same time, and so we were looking at uh, different indications with different um, uh, target pathogens um, and, and slightly different products, and uh, in the end that totally paid out because the Sort of what what we were doing in the end was only partially um, what we we thought would be the the most straightforward approach at the beginning. Now we we started Fagomet thinking that uh, a certain uh, phage product w would have been the fastest to market and the easiest to develop because it was most data on it. So like at the at the beginning, naively without without having. Uh, done all the work, it looked easiest, but then it turned out that that um, that it was a completely different one that that uh, sailed much more easily uh, through through all the stage gates and and milestones that that we had set ourselves. And and then uh, at some point we switched and said, okay, now now it's the endolysin that's that's going to be our lead product product. But I think that's where that's where having a, a strong and and also in a certain way diverse. Um, okay, the two of us are not terribly diverse, uh, granted, but uh, at least in terms of of um, of approach, in terms of of thinking, um, where a, a team that that has that can incorporate multiple perspectives really help because we have to reinvent ourselves 
all the time. Mm-hmm. With new data that comes in, well, you need to reevaluate, well, is that is what you initially thought, is that really going to work? Uh, we had to stop programs in the, the three years, programs that we had invested um, a certain amount of, of private and, and public money into. So you, you need to constantly reevaluate these decisions. And, and as Renzo said, there were things that we, we started which would just not have worked in the clinic and it became apparent. And then you need to take the, the unfortunate consequences that you, that that is not going to be the most successful path in, in science. There's always the, there's the urge to hope that, you know, the next experiment will, will change it. The next experiment will show that it does work. And we just didn't think out, you know, we didn't control for the right variables or we didn't, uh, you know, have the right experimental setup. And I think that's a good attitude up to a point. Once you've seen something not work for four, five, six, seven times, well, the likelihood that it won't work just becomes quite high. And I think that's something where um, we did manage to every now and then take decisions, which ultimately I think were, were the right ones um, and which brought us to a place where then uh, what we actually had, the data that we had, the technology, the platform then became so interesting that it led into an, an early an early acquisition. Um, but I think that's a very important quality for an entrepreneurial journey is to think about how to reinvent yourselves at, at important moments, because it's unlikely that the first things that you start all pan out. Yeah? And so you need to have a couple of, of shots and you need to, you need to decide when to, when to then turn left or right. It's an interesting point that uh, you bring up the dynamics in the beginning of a company or initially when you start uh, really as a company, how were these first days for you um, in terms of uh, building structures, building a team, building a, building the processes? So maybe, I mean, we, we can tell a couple of anecdotes. Yeah, the, uh, one of the first things we did, I think already in 2017, uh, without even having having a legal entity, um, we, we went to the Bio Europe. This this big uh, you know investment and licensing and partnering uh, conference in biotech, and uh, met up like asked for meetings with a couple of venture capital funds, and um, we we just had our slides, no lab, couple of data from from a corporation partner, but uh, no legal entity, no funding, basically nothing, just slides. And and were pitching for uh, a Series A, basically, <laughs> and they they sort of laughed at us. Uh, but but there were a couple of guys who who actually I don't know if they just found us funny or they um, but they they engaged like in a serious way and and uh, and we started discussing okay how how does a Series A company look like, and that meant that um, okay we we knew okay before the series a maybe we start with the seed round and and uh, set up the the structures that that make the the company investable but that also meant that um we uh, sort of although this was a sort of a cold shower in a sense um we knew okay we need to with the with the first seed money we need to invest it in a way that afterwards we become interesting for a series a investor and and the other way around, we, we needed to already to plan a little bit. How would the Series B investor look like? And accordingly, what do we need to do in a Series A? And accordingly, what do we need to achieve during the seed stage um, to to make this company successful? And so in the end, it's for us. It was really learning by doing. Uh, there was a lot of 
negative feedback that made us stronger in a sense because we saw that that maybe some some parts of our story just didn't uh, you know uh, weren't coherent yet or weren't weren't consistent with with a reality in uh, in the investment market. What I think I, I do remember very vividly is that feeling that you're always behind. You're always behind on where you need need to be. Yeah, so you 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 get your first money, great, but really you should already have a lab. Yeah, and then and then you get your lab, but really in reality you should already have all of these results. Yeah, and then and you have a team, but in reality you would need double the team to to actually deliver what what you need to deliver. So you're constantly sort of playing catch up with with where you want to be, um, and you're. You're sort of it, it. I think in retrospect, those first months um, they, they seem very short because you were constantly trying to troubleshoot something. I mean, we're in Vienna, and Vienna is a fantastic city, but lab space is a real problem. So finding lab space, I mean, that was a constant struggle um, and, and until we had a lucky break there. And then you know, finding the protocols to establish or finding the the bacterial collections to to establish your your own assays. You're constantly troubleshooting in, in one dimension or the other. Um, and so I think it's important that even in the beginning, you have you have a team that you can rely on and you, you can really de- divide up work. And I think that's that's a bit where I think our journey is maybe also a bit special in that um, we started this company on a, on a sort of a partnership also between the two of us, um, where we felt that we were complementary in, in our approach, in our capabilities, yeah, and so and uh, and we were from the beginning able to to work together, um, maybe not always without, without friction, but very seamlessly in the sense that uh, um, that we divided work and, and we just we, we just went out and, and started yeah, and uh, and got things done over time um, and always challenged each other and the rest of the team to really think about well what do we actually want to achieve in the next three months, six months, nine months. Uh, how can we write that down? How can we hold ourselves accountable? Um, and then go back to it and say, well, you know, okay, this we need to adjust, this we need to adjust, and there we need to move left to right. And so I think that, that in a sense, we we wanted to build a high-performance biotech company. Um, and I, I do think we succeeded in that. And I think that's that's probably a part what also at the end was the, the package that that Biontech found attractive. Um, apart, obviously, from from the science and then how that could play out. Let's tell a little bit at the beginning of the journey before we jump to the end of the journey, or the, 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 let's say the midterm of the journey, because it's, it's obviously not over. Um, you mentioned two things. I mean, one is the lab space. So it's a call for politicians, build some labs here. We have enough opportunity in Vienna and we need more space. And the second thing I want to point out is what you mentioned uh diversity of skills in the management board and on the other hand uh, the learnings that you have with going out on the market and I want to ask you to a personal question um, when I look at entrepreneurship successful companies always uh, have one trait in common they do something that nobody else does but the problem with that is that everybody else tells a different story And everybody else thinks uh, it's not possible what the entrepreneurs would do. And time and time again, entrepreneurs uh, like you or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk prove that they are right. And the other people should a little bit amend their reality. Uh, What I want to know from you is how is that from the perspective of an entrepreneur, when you know that your approach 
your plans are the right ones that help moving society forward. But everybody else says, no, it's not working. It's not possible. Or you should uh, do this and this and that on top of that. How is that for, for you when you are in the situation? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, it's <laughs> so it's difficult. I think there... Uh, also, the, the uniqueness must not be absolute in a sense that in our case, uh, there were some other phage companies and we, we thought that we knew why what we're doing is, is a little better. Um, but the, um, like it's, it's good to not be the only one trying something or being in a, in a certain field, I think, because then maybe the, um, the, the, the overall idea is, is validated in a sense. Uh, and you need to make something special, something on top of that. Um, but yes, uh, I think what, you, what you're doing is right. If, uh, if it was self-evident um, that, that, that the idea is the right thing to do, um, then other people would have done it already. And, and so um, it needs, I think, it needs a good balance between um, confidence, that confidence in, in in our own abilities that, that, that we can actually make it happen. But at the same time, it needs a lot of insecurity in the sense that you need to question all the time whether what you're doing is the right thing. And sometimes it's not, and you need to slightly change it. And if, like, if you were just saying, oh, pff, um, I'll, I'm, I'm doing the right thing and, and just get on with it, that, that probably also is, is, is not going to work. So it's a, it's a very delicate balance. I think it, it requires a lot of reflection. So I, I do think that we, in general, we, uh, we, I mean, obviously, yeah, you meet a lot of people who will tell you, no, not interesting, or no, I'm not going to invest. Uh, no, others have tried it, it's not going to work. Yeah. And uh, I think the important thing is to take it serious because most of the time people are not saying that because they're trying to discourage you or because they, um, they, they sort of, they want to be arrogant. Um, but they've simply made an experience that led them to that that conviction, and now it's it's then your job as the entrepreneur to prove them wrong. But um, you shouldn't be blind to the fact that these people have good experiences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think in in the end, if I remember back to the beginning, there were a lot of people who told us, "Well, look, you know, taking phages has been tried. Um, we still to this day don't have a clinical trial that shows in, in which settings they're reliable and efficacious." Um, and so um, maybe think twice about doing something about it. And we did think twice, but not in the sense that we didn't do it. We thought twice about, well, okay, how can we de-risk the approach? What are variations that we can take that help us to understand what will work? Because the, the fundamental is there. You have an entity which in nature can kill a bacteria, and you have an antibiotic resistance crisis, and we need new antibiotics. So the fundamentals are there. 
But it's quite possible that we need to learn from what other people have done and, and do it differently. And I think that's what we always try to do. We always try to push the science in the fields that we entered. And um, I think our papers and also our patents show that we've always worked on pushing forward where the field is and, and trying out new approaches. Um, so I, I, I think you, you, need, you do need to be convicted that the fundamentals are correct, but you can still learn from the no's um, that people give. And I think the reality is you, you need 50 no's for every yes. Yeah, so it's also just part of the legwork. Is that 50 or 50 no's for yes? I'd say five zero. 50. 50, yeah, 50, yeah. I, I also 15. I think the keywords that you mentioned here is uh, the risking approach. Um, so the drug development basically is producing for the pharmaceutical industry uh, as a first step, as a small company and uh, not so much jumping directly to the patient. And when you take this approach that you mentioned, that you did with Argomet, that you stepwise the risk your program up to a point where it uh, reaches a stage where it becomes an interesting target for a clinical candidate and uh, you really can move towards the clinic. It's the point when usually the pharma industry starts getting interested in that. And also with the interest of the pharma industry, um, investors get interested that not so much uh, invest in the seed stages, but in the series A stages, which is very close to the clinics. This was my impression of the pharma industry so far. Uh, would you share this perception or would you like to me to amend my perspective on the pharma industry? So maybe just one, one comment on that. I would say that we, we never set out to build a company for the pharmaceutical industry. We mm -hmm. set out to build a company for patients and society. And I think it's, it's, and that's where I wouldn't quite agree with, with what you said. I think if you, if you try and build something for the, the sort of the, the exit case, essentially, um, I'm not sure you're going to create a lot of value because, I mean, especially in drug development, there are a lot of approaches which sound great on paper, but will they move the needle for patients? Will they have a chance to improve the standard of care? And I think that must be the, the, the standard that we hold ourselves to. And to be honest, I mean, if we would be building something for the pharmaceutical industry, well, we shouldn't be developing antibacterials because the pharmaceutical industry on average doesn't want antibacterials, but patients and society do. And so I think we, at least the way we wanted to take it is find where we can help patients and yes, find commercially attractive areas where we can help patients because that's at least the reality for the initial programs that we need to do in this climate, um, but not just build something that that sort of maybe works for, for the pharmaceutical industry, but then doesn't really take care of, of the patient side. But I also think that, so I, I, think, I fully agree, um, to, to come back to what, what you proposed, uh, Christian, I think every, in every stage of a company, you have, you have the, different, the different profile of the right investor. Like in, in seed stage, um, the, the, uh, the probably angel rounds typically work better because the return expectations are totally different than, let's say, a big venture capital fund. And uh, in a Series A stage for biotech, that round might just be too big for um, uh, for um, angels, but might be still too small for those very big funds that that fund the Series B, Series C uh, uh, companies. Yeah, so uh, I think for for every stage you have you have different um, uh, different profiles of investors, and where at which stage big pharma may come in. 
that may completely differ uh, depending on the profile of that pharma uh, company. There, there are some who just by definition take only clinically validated assets. So even after series A, typically then, um, or uh, there, there might be some, uh, like in the case of BioNTech, that are interested in, uh, in preclinical assets. So it's, it's, it's very, I think the, the, the diversity even within the pharma industry and within like the, all the other types of investors is so large um, that, that you, in a sense, you need to find the right one for, for the right company. I agree. It makes sense to plan backwards from the patient and then see where you find the right partners for the approach um, to move things forward, which uh, leads me to the next question. Um, one of my favorite uh, writers is Ryan Holiday. It's a US-based influencer who studies uh, philosophy. And he wrote a book which uh, he titled The Obstacle is the Way. And what I'm interested in from your journey from the start of the company, so you started it in 2017 and then moved it along up to the end. What were the three major obstacles that you had to overcome? Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. I'd say one was uh, the, the, really the, the, the technical, scientific, hardcore problems. Mm. That was definitely one. Another one maybe. Uh, the business case, like what, 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 what would be um, the what would be the the business case for a targeted antimicrobial that that is independent from the science? Even if the science is great, it's possible that uh, if if you bet on the wrong horse with uh, yeah with the the, uh, the wrong pathogen or wrong uh, um, uh, target indication. Even if there is a big medical need and everything, uh, and the science is great, it still might not fly. So that's two. And I think the last one is building the right culture for the company that we wanted to to have. So I think we we obviously we both came from strategy consulting, a super high performance, high reward environment where um, basically you are willing to put in a lot of hours to make something work. Um, and we now sort of, we shared that culture, but it's clear that the people that you then bring on board into a biotech, um, they don't have some of the same, you know, um, reward and, uh, and interest matrices as maybe some people who, who enter strategy consulting. At the same time, we really wanted to keep that high performance mindset. We wanted to do things right. We wanted to do excellent science. We wanted to question ourselves at every point in time. We wanted to develop our people. And so it took us a while to figure out which elements of the high-performance culture that we knew could be translated into a biotech and how to do things in a way where it then makes sense, made sense. So I think we, we have managed to create an environment where 
um, we essentially, I mean, everybody in our company works normal work hours. Yeah? We work 40 hours in the week and, and that's sort of it. Um, and in those 40 hours, we are extremely productive because we found a way to build a culture where um, we always question ourselves. We always give each other input and feedback. Uh, we have flat hierarchies. We have very agile teams. We have very frequent communication nodes where, where we share information. Um, and that really allows us to get great output every week. But at the same time, within the constraints of um, a different industry, which is um, people are here to work. They're not here to build their careers, to you know have a super fast uh, career progression towards um, becoming the, the CEO of some company. Um, and I think that's something which took us about a year to figure out how to, how to do that right. Um, and we also made some mistakes along the way. And we, we, we probably took some decisions on um, team that, that we shouldn't have taken, um, but you learn from that and you, you need to live with your, your mistakes. You need to correct them when you have a chance. And then you try out the next variation, the next iteration, and I think that's another thing that, that that I at least think was a big, it was in a sense an obstacle. Um, today, it's a real asset. Yeah, we have a fantastic team. We have a, a huge amount of speed in our programs. Um, and, uh, and that's really, that's great and rewarding to see. And also the fact that we have people who joined us in, in 2018 and have been able to, to grow with us, starting as essentially a venture scientists and now being team leaders and then sort of important um, research leaders in, in our environment. I think that's also really rewarding to see. Well, this I think this cultural aspect very interesting. Where did you take the energy to to shift your perception? To you said to start uh, at Boston Consulting Group and had this high performance uh, culture, and then you amended your uh, perspective on the high performance culture to the pharma industry, to the early stage pharma industry. Um, how did you do that? Uh, because, I mean, when I look in, especially Vienna, for example, or also in other cities, very often people say, okay, this doesn't work. Um, I want this culture. I want to progress in that way. But uh, realize that they deal now with different kinds of people. And the result, many people have, I give up. I stopped the company, which in my opinion is one of the reasons why companies fail uh, early stage because things just don't work. And you made a different decision and said, okay, how can we amend that? Uh, what process did you go through to come to that point that you say, okay, we change it and not we give up? I would say it, it, it starts again with uh, questioning what you do every day. Uh, so, of course, you can postulate that, uh, yeah, we're going to have uh, uh, this, the same high performance, uh, high reward, uh, high, high, in principle, high energy culture. Um, but then you need to think, okay, what's, what's a win-win for both sides? For What's a, a situation where um, everybody likes to come to work and how can you foster uh, cooperation, motivation, uh, also positive feedback and learning and uh, and do that at the right level so that so that it just works it, it, it there's no point in uh, dreaming of uh, like some some unrealistic culture it's it's about um i guess one one element of course is hiring the right people and then taking good hiring choices where where you 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 pre-check you have a good process that that gives you a high rate of of good hiring decisions where 
um, where you form a coherent team, where from the beginning you have a good feeling that that it, like on a personal level, on a professional level, uh, the the cooperation might work very well. But then it's also um, taking those process decisions every day. Uh, how yeah? How do we interact on on a day to day and week by week basis? What do we? Um, how do we discuss results? How do we prioritize? Uh, uh, who takes which decisions? And who like? How do we? How do we work together to take decisions and to get buy in for for the decisions by everybody so that they're not just mandated or or postulated by the team, but but it's really a, a common decision. And, and so I think there. I don't think it's one thing. It's it's many um, many little elements that that starts that start probably with with being open for uh, whatever it takes to 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 make the the cooperation work. To sum it up, <laughs> trial and error. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and keeping keeping going. I mean, uh, not giving up. I think is also one 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 part of the game. You mentioned uh, a second obstacle that you needed to overcome is uh, finding the right business case. Can you shine a little bit more light on that? Uh, what uh, the process were that you two uh, were going through towards coming to the point where you said, okay, now we have it. So we believed from the beginning that the one of the reasons why phages or maybe a bit more broadly uh, precision antimicrobials, why they're not on the market is that it's actually not so easy to find a good business case. The um, antibiotics, um, we know they, they have a big uh, resistance problem, but so one could ask, okay, so why, why don't pharma companies just invent new ones and, um, uh, and, and then we solve the problem? And, and the, the, there is a technical aspect to that, that it's not so easy to, to find small molecule antibiotics that are completely new. But there is also a business case uh, angle to that in that um, the, the old antibiotics, they're genericized, low, low price, um, they kill typically all bacteria. So you just, uh, sometimes there is a bit of specificity, but in general, they're, they're broad spectrum. And, and so if you, if you invent a new one, Nobody will use it um, because they will put it into. They will use it as last resort uh, for for cases where nothing else works, and that is just an impossible business case because then you you just don't make revenue. So so from the beginning, when you okay, a precision antimicrobial must be something that that improves the standard of care in some indication um, much above what what is possible technically with with uh, currently available small molecule antibiotics. And then if it works better, if it helps save lives also beyond the still fortunately comparably rare cases of antimicrobial resistance, then it can be, then it's technically possible and uh, possible from a business case perspective. But now how do you find such an indication? And uh, there, I think our, our systematic uh, consulting style approach was, was very helpful because from the beginning, we sort of, we, we designed a, a filter system for okay, which which indications are typically monomicrobial or where at least only few species play a role rather than uh, wild zoos of bacteria. Um, what what are indications with a large medical need where then the the price for such a drug that that maybe from a volume uh, uh, will not be so high for a number of prescriptions. But then if the medical need is high enough and the, the, the price will be high enough and then there might be a business case. 
what um, were our clinical trials even feasible? That's not the case for every indication. Um, where is the preclinic feasible, feasible in the sense that there are uh, validated animal trials? Um, in, in which indications is there a, a scientifically validated causative agent? Yeah, and, and not just a hypothesis for for which bacteria might be might be responsible. So it's there is a whole list of of dimensions where you need a green check um, uh, so that so that it might really work. And and we uh, we were quite systematic about that. Uh, the, yeah, looked at uh, dozens of of different uh, indications and and possibilities for uh, for applications of uh, precision pharma from uh, precision antimicrobials we came up with with a long list but it's it's very specific cases where um the medical need is actually very big but um it's uh, let's say you, you really need to think it through uh, and it, it's not the obvious or it's not it, it's actually the, it's, it's quite different to how uh, bacterial infections are treated with small molecule antibiotics yeah, interesting point. So you went from uh, the ideation phase, which took about two years, started then uh, structuring your team and uh, building your processes, and then also spent some time finding the right business case and uh, um, let's say molding it in a way that it uh, makes an attractive and compelling story to tell uh, as we are still a few years away from the patient. Um, the thing is then, I mean, this can also be done uh, in private, uh, in one-on-one uh, -on -one talks uh, between you two. But at one point in time, it makes sense to go out on the market and as you did it, uh, to find um, people who buy into the idea. And I would like to come now to the point to ask you the question, uh, what's the reality of fundraising in the industry? What experience did you make uh, from the day we said, okay, we found a company, uh, your decision to go out on the market, find investors, and uh, how much time does it take to find, on one hand, the right structure for the financing round and then the right people? I mean, it's it's constantly on your mind. Yeah, I think that there, there is not a day where you don't, you know, you don't think about, well, how much money do I have? What's my, my run rate? Um, when do I need to go out again? You, you're constantly fundraising, obviously, because you're constantly probing the market to see uh, well, can I raise my Series A now? Can I raise it now? Can I raise it now? Yeah, and I think that's that's important because you 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 constantly get feedback. So we essentially every two three months we went to an investment conference, and even if we weren't fundraising, we sort of we we tried to test the water to see if we could be fundraising or if we could start a conversation that might might lead to something, lead to something, um, and and I think that that was crucial uh, in in getting feedback along the way. Um, I think initially we were very lucky to have angel investors in our network, a lot of them with uh, entrepreneurship experience and or pharmaceutical experience who were willing to bet on the two of us, essentially, because that's what you do at, at that early stage. I mean, the, the main bet is on the team. Part of the bet is on the science, on the indication and all around that. But if if the team's not there and you don't trust in the team, then, then it's always going to be a difficult, a difficult sell. So we were lucky to to um, luck, luck is always you know uh, it's it's interesting to mention yeah but we we were at the right place at the right time to to find others who believed in us and we we made that that interesting um, sort of 
choice to combine the public funding with the private funding and to tie the two together in a way that uh, sort of the public side expected co-funding from the private side. And so we essentially told the public side, well, you know, if you give us the money, we'll have the private investment lined up. And the other way around, we told the private investors, well, you know, you'll only have to invest if the public side lines up. Um, that led to a, a sort of a night with very little sleep um, right before the, the main funding decision. Um, but it worked out. Yeah, and so before we said, you know, how do you how do you deal with all the no's? Yeah, I mean, that was a clear moment where, where somebody said, yes, yeah, it, it's worth to try it. Um, and and uh, I think also from from sort of the public side, this was a good return on investment because of the number of R and D jobs that are now um, that we're building up in Vienna that we have built up and, and that we're continuing to build up. And they took a risk um, because they they gave, also gave us money that uh, essentially could not have brought any any return. So you in our case, I think one of the advantages of Austria is you can combine these two systems. We have fantastic public funding instruments here, and you can combine that with private investments and thereby leverage yourself by a big factor. Then trying to find the next round of investors, the next ones to join the group, well, that's a constant fight with, um, am I at the right place in time? Who's out there who would be willing to give me money? Will that get me to an interesting point? Um, and there, I think we we always tried to find um, also creative ways of fundraising. We used convertible loans twice. Um, we did a priced equity rounds once. Um, we discussed various different funding structures also um, before sort of then uh, the discussions became an acquisition discussion uh, mid last year. Um, so yeah, fundraising is a is a constant. Uh, Struggle and occupation. Yeah, and as I, I mean, I, I shared this anecdote before with the sort of failed first uh, Series A request uh, before we even had a lab. Um, but but in reality, um, at that conference, we made a lot of contacts um, that we kept nurturing and like we we kept sending uh, um, those people updates and little like mini newsletters, maybe twice a year or so to, to just tell them where we are. And actually they, they came back to us and uh, um, asked questions sometimes or, or said, look, uh, we are, or, or we came, kept uh, like starting, okay, when uh, we're, we're, we're closing a new fund now. So are you, are you ready for a series A? Should we talk again? So also like there is a long-term perspective to that where I think um, at least us, it helped to, to have to be able to paint the picture for the next two rounds, even if even if it, it never comes as you planned, right? It, uh, it's it's impossible to perfectly predict the future, but showing the potential investors or, or just contacts you're talking to um, that you have a plan and and you have a um, the, the, currently there is a clear way how to steer the company um, helps and. Um, keeping also like building up longer term relations over years with uh, with some venture capital partners or some uh, angels and and like other people who are just in the field who who then talk to other people that that really helped. Yeah. I agree to all you say. I think uh, the 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 one factor that is very often underestimated in fundraising is relationship building before people need the money. Um, 
sometimes it gets the feeling that uh, people work in their labs, uh, move the science forward, and then go out on the market when they actually need money. So when they are uh, three, four, five months away from cash out. And uh, it's the first time when they engage with investors. I think what you did is very smart to start the process early and uh, always talk uh, with investors and also getting their feedback with finding a way not to be annoying with constantly, let's say, chasing the same investor, but with sending out mini newsletters and uh, engaging with, with people. How much, in your opinion, did that contribute to your success that you uh, were always on the market and not just said, okay, let's wait a couple of years until we need money and then go out on the market? But uh, how much did that contribute to your success? I think the, the, it's very difficult to say because at the end, the path that we took was just unpredictable. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, it's, it's in a sense, uh, um, it's, it's the, probably the bite equivalent of, of a black swan event, which you, you don't plan for. Yeah, you don't, it's just not, it's not, it, it wasn't in our, you know, two, three year plan to, to get acquired. Um, but I think the feedback is just extremely valuable. That constant feedback, you know, going out and getting shot down, it's painful. But okay, well, yeah, you, you know, you 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 to sit back, take a deep breath, and then and you try again, yeah. And um, I, I remember that that when I was at conferences in San Francisco, I would adapt my pitch deck between sort of these sessions based on the feedback that I was getting. I, I was adding in data, taking out data, you know, shifting it around. And I think that's that's important. The other part which you mentioned, which I I, I fully agree in, is you need to have a long-term view on your run rate and then your cash. So we always built the company in a way where we had at least, you know, six to 12 months of runway left. And if we felt we were getting, you know, to a year or, or lower than a year, we started thinking about an interim round to put in place, either to have it as a backup and to know, okay, I have something I call in or to actually, you know, put it in place and, and take the dilution hit. Um, because you you don't want to be in a situation where a you need to scale down the team. In our case, we, we feel like we've have a fantastic team. We've invested a lot into the team, um, and so losing these people because you need to downsize would have been yeah I think that would have been dramatic for us. Uh, that would would not have felt good at all, um, and it would have been difficult to recover from to to build it up again. Um, and so trying to to shape your finances in a way that you're you're always quite far away from from you know the edge that that you might plunge over um i think in our case that was that was very successful and also meant that we had a certain i mean you're you're never in the most powerful position if you're negotiating with an investor just because he has the money that you need to advance but it at least gave us the peace of mind to hold out on certain decisions or to also say no to a couple of investors along the way and and wait for something um that that fitted better along the way to come along um, to be then able to to sort of find the right team of investors and not be pressured by the fact that if I don't take this investment now, um, I don't know I'm going to pay our wages in three or four months. And I'd like to add to that that I think um, there was a lot of learning involved. Like from from the first time we talked to venture capital firms in 2017, uh, it was slightly naive. Uh, um, uh, um, yeah, with, with a nice picture of, of what they want. Um, then talking again and again to different ones. Um, yes, in, in the end, uh, you know, we we had talked to Biontech maybe just uh, six, seven months before the acquisition and never before. 
but we had talked to lots of other people and uh, um we we it, it took a while to really understand what they want and there, there was a um uh, th there was a certain a red line in um or let's say a a, a trend uh, in in terms of what to um what do these funds want what do they need and it's it obviously it has to be a win-win situation for uh, for for them to place um to place a bet in a in a specific company and uh, i think to to be successful there one needs to understand what they want and what they need and how they work and and how these uh, how how these funds really make their money and what their worries are uh, but also what their um, what their approach is to to develop a company and then to to exit out, out of a company and and if the if the pitch uh, to to the investors and you're not talking about the this one five minute uh, presentation that you give but really the the discussion what you say in these in these discussions um, if that doesn't take into account what what the uh, what the VCs or other types of investors what they want um, then then you won't come together. And it was definitely a, a learning process for us um, to 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 understand how this works, how to talk to them, and um, yeah, also understand what what sort of what they give on trends and uh, sort of then with with our product we had this uh, women's health uh, uh, keyword in it and and precision medicine and like all these things. If if you, in, it needs to be like a coherent case on itself. But if you if you can ring some bells and check some marks uh, in in some of these trends that that do show up on the um, on the decision lists of uh, of, of investors, um, yeah, it's going to be difficult. Or if 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 you do that, it just makes all these discussions much easier. I can... And then I think you also need to walk away when you feel it's not right. So I remember discussions in 2019 where um, there was a big ticket on the table, but it would have come with giving up a lot of control on the company. And we had alternatives. And so we, we were in the position to, to say no to that. Um, also remember even earlier, I think it was late 2018, 2019, um, we were in, I think it was Switzerland and Metafund was also interested, but simply we we didn't see eye to eye on how to develop the company and so it's it's a tough decision as a, as a founder because the with more money you can do more things you can place more bets you can advance faster um but sometimes you simply also have to say no when you feel like it's it's going to change the way the company feels and, and the way that that you can build it and it's no longer going to be um close to where your heart is And I think there we we also said no a couple of times. Um, and now, of course, hindsight is, is 2020, but uh, um, obviously paid out to say no to those to those specific situations and, and interests. Um, and and I think it, it helped us stay true to to the company that we wanted to build. I like the approach that. Uh you had in raising money it's not always about the capital i completely agree to that uh, it's also about uh, what the funds need and no fund is created equally so they have different goals different perspectives uh, different structures set up uh, in which they operate 
And on the other hand, it's also values. Uh, do you share the same perspective than the investor? Does the investor share the same perspective in developing the company than the founders do? And I like the approach or the words that you use, Lorenzo and Alexander, that you saw it as a learning process and not so much as a transactional process where you just go in, take the money and go home. So uh, where you talked uh, a lot with people, and I think this is something that other entrepreneurs can learn from you that uh, talking a lot with investors, finding out what their values are and if they're a good fit helps at the end of the day to mold the company in a way that it becomes an, attract an attractive target later in the process. And um, also what you mentioned, Alexander, initially this dilution, uh, there is always a discussion about how much uh, control do you give up uh, for capital. But on the other hand, there is always this balance of uh, giving up control, but on the other hand, having the capability um, of developing the company fast. I mean, like Emerson, I think Jeff Bezos says currently less than 10% of the company, but he's one of the richest people in on the planet that has built a big company uh, with only 10%. How important was for you this dilution part uh, at the end of the day? You mentioned a little bit uh, about it already. Can you dig a little bit deeper uh, what your point was to say, okay, uh, this and that must happen that I'm willing to give up control of the company to gaining the ability to build faster. Yeah, I think um, in we, at least at the, at the beginning for, for the first rounds, uh, we, we wanted to keep the, the absolute control, like uh, taking budget decisions, worst case alone, um, all hiring decisions and so on. But of course there were, uh, like the the, the the shareholders agreement that had some limits as, as to what like what sort of sums we we could decide on but but fundamentally we we could decide alone on the budget and um that means that that you can basically take decisions on the company without uh, lengthy processes and without having to take into account uh, maybe different views by uh, by a large investor and so the uh, because the first rounds were with angel investors, um, like the, the typical, I mean, the, 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 their um, goal was never to to have really control. Like every individual investor held just uh, a very small slice of the cake, and uh, uh, in a sense trusted us that that we take the right decisions. Um, and I think for the beginning, that is extremely important because there is a huge um, asymmetry of, uh, of, of knowledge and information between we as the management and what the investors uh, know and think. And, and maybe uh, like the, maybe they even read a paper about the topic, but in general, they don't know terribly much. And, and so, um, yeah, for us, the we knew that in a, in a big Series A, we would have to give up this budgeting um uh, absolute power but 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 that was sort of a that that was in in a sense the red line that that led us to say no to that to that investor that that once put a a, a larger ticket on the table but i think the dilution sort of the you can only give up equity once it's very difficult to get it back once it's given up and so we always knew that in the series a we would be giving up a large chunk of equity and so it made sense to be conservative with your equity up front. Uh, that also meant that we we didn't have a VC on board who would automatically sort of guarantee the next rounds and be an anchor investor next round. We sort of a bit started from scratch um, in, in sort of our, our Series A uh, 
fundraising. At the same time, I, I do want to say with regards to, to angel investors, if you're a GMBH, you always also need to take into account that for the big decisions, you actually need the signature of every single angel investor that you have on the table. So being sort of smart about that and having people who you also trust to act sort of in a in, in a joint sense of interest, um, that's also important. Yeah, and I think that's something that people sometimes tend to forget that um, actually having somebody who's invested at GmbH, even if it's a small slice of the pie, he holds a lot of power, he or she, in, in the sense that uh, that 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 investor. Um, and so making sure that you feel happy with the investors that you're bringing on board, that's also an important part. Yeah. And I think in terms of dilution, uh, for us, it was always more important to, to have a perspective that we only do up rounds and we, we don't have to do a, a down round. And so it's... Um, It's it's actually it's bad for everybody if like the 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 valuation in the round after this is uh, is is lower than uh, than the valuation of the current round um, because it, it it just gives a bad picture and it sets a bad mark and everything and basically the company's done then um, so like we tried to be like of course we wanted to preserve our share but. We knew that um, you know you can't be too greedy in a sense that you have to give up something because otherwise um, you you might uh, you might not be able to deliver a decent return in the round after the next. And so it's always really important to think of the round after the next and the, the round after that. Um, if 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 so many rounds are needed, uh, that that you need to have a, a realistic chance or even a high probability. To be able to deliver overall value increases, um, and if that means more dilution, then it means no more dilution because there is just no way around uh, improving the value in in each round. I agree totally to what you're saying. I think also it's a message to investors that uh, the up rounds. Uh, there's a reason why uh, people should look for up rounds. It's this. Uh, creating this feeling of success because at the end of the day, the founders and also the team of the of people in the company who have options uh, give up a bit of equity. And uh, when investors start to negotiate to the death, and I'm pretty sure some uh, experts in negotiation out there on the market, uh, they always risk creating this feeling of uh, being a loser in the team and being a losing team and not being able to push their Uh, perspective through in terms of valuation. And I think the last thing an investor in an early stage company should create is this uh, feeling of uh, being uh, in a losing team and this uh, upround accepting that in the, initially they get not this big chunk of the pie that they would like to see uh, is key to success also because, uh, as you mentioned, uh, it creates a success feeling. Do you agree to that? Do you see that similar? That uh, it's important to keep the spirit up also from the investment perspective in the team? Yeah, definitely. I think that that that's also like a criterion that that you should apply to uh, to new investors and in in deciding whether or not to take somebody. Like if if both sides say the long term success of the company is more important than the valuation that we agree on now, th then that's a good sign. If if you have the impression um, th there is a too hard negotiation in in one or the other direction, uh, and actually I really mean both sides now as as uh, Uh, as as uh, like the, as the founders uh, 
but but also is as 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 an angel um if if you have the impression is this just goes in the wrong direction um you shouldn't do the investment or shouldn't accept the money i think we try to steer, steer clear of these sort of um take it or leave it offers yeah i mean that's that's not really how it can work yeah i mean you 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 need to negotiate and you need to find compromises uh, because at the end of the day no matter what kind of deal you do you're negotiating on, on so many levels you're negotiating about equity you're negotiating about control you're negotiating about strategy so you need to find to to a joint point where where each side gets what's most important to them but then compromises on on other areas Yeah, and finding a common ground so that the company can moving forward at the end of the day, it's the team that delivers and uh, when the team stays motivated, uh, it also secures uh, the value for investors because the team is moving forward. And especially in our industry, it's not one round of financing anyways, it's several rounds of financing because it's just, uh, it's the reality. I mean, I think... Um, To bring one therapeutic to the market, we talk about a few billions in total until a new therapeutic reaches the market. And when I look at the sizes of the funding rounds, uh, it's four, five hundred, six hundred million later stage companies, also the IPO stage uh, that the company raises. So this initial seed investment and also Series A is just the first step towards the success. Which leads me to the next question because. Um, Coming close to the clinic, uh, companies usually need a minimum of 20, 30 million cash injection. And even as you, I mean, you said, you don't plan for an exit, but uh, it's always the question, where does the money come from? And uh, one part uh, of uh, parties that can bring money to the table is actually the pharma industry. And Christoph Langauer in a previous podcast said something very interesting. He said, uh, companies are not sold. Companies are acquired at the end of the day. So it's not uh, that a, a company can plan to be sold. It's the other way around. Companies should plan for, go, as you said, going to the market. And then sometime it might happen that a company comes along. Uh, can you shine a little bit more light on the reality of an acquisition? How planable is such an event as an entrepreneur? Well, unplanned event are also that the computer runs out of battery. So give me a second to get my table <laughs> and I'll leave that question to Lorenzo. Yeah, so like in, in our case, it was not planned at all um we didn't we didn't anticipate that this could even happen uh because we our expectation was very firmly um acquisitions are possible after uh, a clinical proof concept but not uh not not in the or, or very rare let's say in the in the preclinical stage so in our case it was um um so i i had an idea for for a potential Uh, cooperation and it was really just a scientific cooperation to explore uh, to, to ex explore something um, we approached uh, uh, people we knew at Biontech and uh, um, then we actually started discussing about a scientific cooperation and and we discussed it for a while uh, then sort of when when they they got the feeling that this could really be something interesting and and we Started also saying that we're we're um, raising um, that we're raising a Series A and that that we're we're looking for funds. Um, it somehow it it came from them. We, we never asked for for an investment by by Biontech. Um, they proposed it because they liked us, liked the approach, and um, then somehow 
how the discussion gradually turned from investment into Series A, and the, um, then, like, obviously, I mean, it, it's clear that if a, if a strategic investor starts with the investment and at the same time um, a scientific cooperation, there there is potential for conflicts of interest because the as a as a as a strategic investor. Uh, there is always the, um, the the option of a full acquisition at some point in the in the future, uh, and then there are valuation discussions. But as in a that, that that might not be aligned with the interests as as a just as a scientific cooperation partner. And so, like the the pure Series A turned out to be technically difficult, and and then the the discussion continued in the in the direction of a uh, of an acquisition. It started maybe in. Around around Easter 2021, uh, so in, in April, um, and then came to a conclusion in August. In sorry, in October, so it was six months overall. Uh, that that we had this 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 transition in the discussion from a um, uh, from potential scientific cooperation to an investment into the Series A to a full acquisition. Seven months is pretty quick. So it's uh, from the start to the end. How dynamic was the process? Um, so when we talk about the technical process, uh, is it just like, uh, let's say, uh, you start with a scientific collaboration, then you discuss over lunch, now let's do a series A. And uh, at the end of the day, in the evening, then the parties come back and say, no, we acquire you. Just sign here, here's the check and everything is done. Uh, how intense is the process at the end of the day when we talk about the reality of an acquisition? It's, it's extremely intense. Um, I think it's, it's even more intense if you're negotiating for, you know, your job, because, I mean, it's your job. <laughs> you're the managing director of the company. You're negotiating for the company. You're negotiating in a certain way for the entire team who has contributed to building something, who, who sort of are a big part of it. And, and at the end, you know, they, they also want to, be part of something that that continues in, in some form, and then you're negotiating for your stock, which is at that point a sizable part of your your personal um, um, assets. So it's extremely intense. Um, I, I I definitely know that that uh, um, that I started um, sleeping rough towards the end of that process, and you're you constantly face lots of new developments yeah i mean the the going from an and series a discussion to an acquisition discussion that's a, it's a roller coaster yeah and then at some point we move back to the series a discussion and then we move back to the acquisition discussion um it's it's really very intense um and it's also i think that that's the same for both sides yeah? i mean both sides are constantly trying to probe and to understand can this actually work you have a due diligence ongoing at the same time, obviously. So um, the other side is probing, well, the, the, does what you say match up to, to what you've done? Um, and then lots of small things suddenly come into play. I remember that uh, that sort of uh, we had a discussion in late 2020 where um, those in our management team who are much more experienced in biotechs um, started really pressuring us to start codifying a lot of the knowledge into formal development reports. And that turned out to be a, a fantastic um, suggestion and nudge where um, in the diligence, we actually had a lot to show because we not only done a lot, we'd also spent time and it was an entire month where the entire team was, was writing reports in, in last January. We actually also spent the time then preparing ourselves for what we thought was going to be a Series A, but it became much more relevant in, in an acquisition discussion. 
So what, what I found uh, most challenging about this whole process uh, is really the asymmetry in, emo in emotions. Yeah, the, for us, we, we negotiated personally, uh, but the counter side usually was then lawyers, for example, IP lawyers, uh, I don't know, other lawyers, uh, all, tans, all, of, uh, all, all, all types of lawyers. And so then... Uh, sort of, it, it was uh, like th then. Sometimes I don't know. Just as an example, they came up with with a new paragraph uh, that that would cover a, a theoretical risk that that only lawyers can come up come up with, um, and and sort of yeah, we we didn't want that. Say no, but like they they like if if the counterpart is is much less emotional, they just say yeah, but I want that paragraph, full stop. And I don't, really don't freaking care if, if this deal goes south, I want my paragraph. You know, and, and then that's sort of, uh, on our case, it, it, it wasn't just a paragraph, it was the whole company and, and the deal and like the, the future. And, and uh, so that, that, that gave us uh, like a couple of tough months uh, in, in summer last year when, when these discussions were ongoing. And it was also a tough month for the, the company, I think, because it meant that obviously it was difficult to share with the full team what was going on. And, and as Lorenzo said, we actually typically were very open and, and shared most of the, the good and bad things that were happening left and right. But here, something so transformative for the company, um, it's difficult to share un until it's really done. And so that, I think, also introduces an element of stress into the company probably also into our families because it's, it, it becomes the overriding topic. Um, how are you negotiating? Where is it going? And is, is it going, to, is it going to, to get to a conclusion? I think in retrospect, um, once you are that deep in the discussion, there is a good chance that this is going to, to happen. Um, but being in that situation, you, you see more of the risks around what, what you still need to do or what could derail the whole discussion than... Uh, than having sort of the confidence that, that it will work out somehow. Yeah, when I think back to my days at the university in the 90s when I was a student, um, the textbook always looked very simple of an acquisition. You have your few steps and here is the process and you walk through. And once you sit in the reality of an acquisition, um, you realize very quickly that uh, human beings also have emotions <laughs> that uh, come into play and the process can become very dynamic. It's good to hear also from you that uh, it's not only me that sees the reality that also you experience something similar. Which brings me to the next question. Um, Let's tap into the key learnings of your process. You made a wonderful story. You created a wonderful story yeah. from 2015 with the first steps up to this, let's say, interim success point, because your story isn't over, obviously. You're now part of uh, the acquiring company and uh, continue building your technology forward. But within these seven years of developing uh, from a startup company into, let's say, the scale-up company into becoming an acquisition target for, meanwhile, one of the biggest players in the European market, uh, what were your five key learnings that you would like to share with other entrepreneurs? Five, so maybe I do two and then... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we can make it six or also, also, or four, <laughs> as you like. Um, I, I think one is to to invest in your team. I think that's something that, that we, um, we always try to set us at times to really invest into, into what we had. 
Um, for example, we, we early on decided that we wanted to do weekly training sessions where we take an hour out of the entire team and we, we train something and we cross train. So somebody who's good at a specific thing teaches the others um, about it. Uh, we invested into our processes. Um, we have SOP schemes and systems, which are maybe on par with, with some of the bigger companies out there, um, because we felt we wanted to very early on standardize certain elements of, we did, of what we do. And so we always try to invest beyond just the science really into us as a company. Um, and I think that's, that's one thing that certainly also drove success in, in building up a, a high-performance team and allowing us to actually deliver the, the, the fantastic science um, that we've been delivering so far. The next one I would say is don't expect that the business case you're starting with is also the one that will be successful. Uh, so th that was uh, like it, it, when we started, uh, sort of we also pitched to, to the investors, to the angels invested in us. We, we explained them what we wanted to do. And so just changing that, you can't just do that, right? They, they invested into something. You can't just change that. But in the, on the other hand, you, you actually need to uh, um, reevaluate with with every piece of new results and, and developments that you have, also with feedbacks that you get from uh, institutional investors, for example. Um, reevaluate your your business plan and and adapt to um, to 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 what um, in the what to what looks the most um, promising thing to do. Which might be very different from even what you what you pitch to your initial investors. Maybe a, a third one: um, uh, be transparent. I think we always tried to be very transparent to to our investors, where we, we took a lot of effort to send monthly updates, do quarterly calls, and just keep them up to date. We, we even had a, a WhatsApp group where we shared sort of smaller updates on, on the team or, or a picture of, of something uh, just to keep people engaged. Um, but also with the team, we, we had weekly all-staff meetings. We tried to be very transparent about the plans for the next half year, um, what we were all working on. And I think that's helpful to build a, a really a common, the feeling that we are in this together and we are we are working on a joint mission to achieve something great. And uh, and everybody sort of knows where, where we're heading and what the next big steps are. Um, and like the, the next one, I would say, don't wait as long as we did to, to start the company. So do it, do it much earlier. Uh, sort of, I mean, I, I was, I think, uh, um, uh, what, probably 40 already when, when we start, or no, even uh, 38 maybe, when, when we started to think about it. And um, so that, like, when you're there, you have kids probably already. And so there... Uh, a failure would have been very painful. Uh, starting earlier um, at, at a slightly earlier stage in life, it's probably easier to um, maybe take a hit, even uh, uh, um, start something new, uh, rather than uh, when 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 you're already older and and uh, like you you have you have invested more uh, in uh, in a company. And I think in in, in retrospect. Um, it could have started much earlier, right? If, if uh, like with a bit more risk uh, appetite, uh, you can uh, you can just do it. And and uh, even I mean I know even of people who 
uh, first quit their jobs without an idea and then started thinking with a clear head um, in, instead of sort of continuing. In our case, I mean, we, we continued at quite like engaging and stressful job for quite a long time and, and doing this in parallel um, instead of um, in, instead of uh, like deciding first, okay, I want to be an entrepreneur uh, and, and now I'm going to think about what to do. And I know of people who have done that very successfully um, so uh, I think if if I could decide again, I would probably start earlier with with uh, building a company. And then just to make it five, um, don't be discouraged by by negative feedback. Uh, see it as a chance to reevaluate uh, where you're going, and to then come to one of two conclusions. One is um, you know they are wrong and you are right, and you just continue the path that you've chosen, and you you have good reasons for believing that, or Maybe there's some truth to it, and then figure out how to adapt the path that you're you're taking. Sorry. Yeah. I agree to everything you say. I mean, I wrote it down as five: invest in your team. Uh, I would say the second part: expect change. Uh, be transparent. Uh, don't wait too long to start the company. Uh, it's always the right time to start something new. I would say. And uh, I think the fifth was also, it, it's very great because it taps into failed culture. Um, don't be discouraged, just continue and don't stop. Uh, great, great advice. Um, Alexander Lorenzo, let me ask you one final question. Um, one, entrepreneur, when entrepreneurs are out there that are listening to the podcast episode and go through these five points and say, okay, I feel now the spark to start a company. Uh, what's the first step that you would recommend to take? Find the right people to do it with. Recognize that you yourself are probably not going to cover all the elements of, of what you need to be successful and start by building your team. Yeah, and I would add to that like a slightly complimentary uh, talk to many people about it. Like, don't be afraid to to discuss it uh, and and get feedback on the idea. Develop it further, uh, because many brains are are very synergistic. It's 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 much more than the sum of uh, of, of the thought processes. And probably on the way you will find potential partners, uh, but on the way you'll also find refinement to your idea and and uh, improvements and and validation. Alexander Lorenzo, anything to add to this episode that uh, I forgot to ask? It's fun. Yeah, maybe that's that's the last part. Building a company is tough. It's stressful, but it's also really fun to see how something grows and, and what it can develop into. So um, maybe if we talked a lot about what, what sort of what you need to get right and all of the things you need to take care of and uh, the negative feedback... Um, it is extremely rewarding. Yeah, it's rewarding. It's a different way of life than uh, sort of going going to work, having a boss, and and doing sort of what what the the bosses of the company tell you. Um, if you're as an entrepreneur, you can take your decisions and really shape something and make something completely new that nobody's ever done before. And I think that's that's extremely exciting, especially if uh, if what what you're doing is uh, serving a deeper purpose, like. Um, the, the, the addressing a huge medical need, like the, the antimicrobial resistance crisis, probably one of the big crises of humanity, of, of human medicine. And, and working on that is uh, that is uh, motivation by itself. And uh, sort of if you can 
shape your own way and define your own path. Um, yeah, I couldn't say it better. It's, it's, it's just deeply rewarding and, and really a lot of fun. I believe that. Alexander Lorenzo, thank you very much for your time. And uh, I wish you too and your team all the best in the new roles. I think it's now BioNTech uh, R&D Austria, if I remember it yeah. right. Yeah. And you're the general managers. Did I remember that right? Yeah. And I'm looking forward uh, to see your technology coming to the market in a few years. Thanks, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. And thanks, everybody, for listening in. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Did you like the episode? Then please, please, please leave a five-star review on Spotify and Apple and make sure that you like, comment, and share the YouTube episode. It helps that the algorithm delivers the episode to people who also benefit from it the same way than you did. Have a great day.